Yeah, that's what he says. He says that your mind, my mind, is like an ice tray. And the phenomena that surrounds you, the experience of nature that surrounds you, that your smell and your taste and your touch, those things, that that experience gets liquefied and poured into your ice tray. Hello and welcome to um, Rabbits. That's what we're talking about. Except for we're not. This podcast is aimed at things that don't quickly reproduce on the interweb and don't quickly run around and then go reproduce again. And this is stuff that's heavy and we're doing it lightly. So if you got a sense of dislocation every now and then, like what in the world is going on? And you feel like you want to just talk about something of merit, but you want to do it in a way where it's not so crazy time and someone's yelling at you. This is your spot. This is Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? I'm John Hears, and we are First Things Foundation. This is episode 53, and this one is entitled, What's a Conspiracy Theory? Anyway. Yep. Hi out there, guys. Uh, I just want to say thank you for everybody to listen. We, we're hitting some nice little subscriber sort of hallmarks, watermarks. What's the word I'm looking for? High watermarks. We're over 500. 500 is nothing in the world of something. But guys, we were nothing. And now we're something. It's kind of fun. There's cool stuff happening, but I'm about to get canceled with this podcast. And you know what? It's okay. Because it doesn't matter. We're trying to talk about heavy things lightly. It needs to be done. So let's do it. So first of all, mine, the one that I can't get out of my head, the conspiracy, Building 7. Are there Building 7 people out there? Now, some of you are saying, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. It's not my thing. I like to look at things rationally. Okay, all right, we'll get to you. But right now, we're doing my conspiracy, Building 7. The thing goes down like a pancake. If you're looking at this building right now in Florida, and God bless, and may all the pain that's going on with those folks in Florida, may it all one day find justice and mercy. But if you look at that building collapse, if you notice that building didn't collapse, it fell apart. It didn't go pancake, but building seven pancake. And why? Well, here's the thing. No one knows. It took seven years to write the first report. There were no words mentioned, zero. I'm, I'll say the number again. Zero words mentioned in the thousand-page report issued by the United States government. Um, no, zero. So if you don't mention something, like in a three-car crash, if you mention only two cars and you're a policeman, you get fired. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. It's the thing. I don't know. I had a run with it. Did anybody have a run? Did anybody ever go on a run with a conspiracy? You went on a run with it? Yeah. It's saying something about me. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I don't. I don't find this pleasant, but I can't. I, I can now. I want you to know that I, I think I've reformed my, my ice cube tray, and I'll explain what the hell that means right now. That's my conspiracy. I can't shake it. Now, there's a deeper question going on here, right? By the way, 
there's other conspiracies that are really interesting. And we're going to talk about them, but I'll, I'll invite you to that later. But here's the deeper question I want to take on. What's happening to me or to you? Now, for you, those of you who don't think about conspiracies, I really don't go down that road of irrationalism. Okay, fine, for you, we'll get to you. But what's happening to me when I begin down this train track of intellectual activity called thinking about, quote, a conspiracy theory? What happens to me when my brain starts to light up? I always want to put those little nodes, things, on, and then watch what happens when I'm thinking about Building 7. I think, I think that should be done. Because what's happening to my brain, what's lighting up when Building 7 is free-falling in my mind? Right? And, and, and buildings don't do that, okay? They don't do that. But that one did. What's happening in my brain or in my mind? So here's some modern-day psychologists explaining what is happening to me and when that Building 7 attack happens in my brain. Here's what's happening to me. It seems that belief in conspiracies was correlated with anomia, lack of interpersonal trust, and insecurity about employment. That's from Ted Gertzel at Rutgers University. He's a researcher and a PhD. Apparently, I'm lacking some interpersonal trust, and I have anomia. I don't even know what that is. Do you know? If you know what it is, make, put it in the comment. Oh, and also, there's a deep insecurity about employment. That's actually true. Yeah. But, like in a good way, like in a creative way. I don't feel like that's fair, Ted Gertzel from Rutgers. Go easy, man. Here's another one. The new scientist. Uh, the new scientist tells me this, quote, The brain did not evolve, John, to process complex information like Building 7. All right, global politics, economics, or science. That's not what your brain's doing. It evolved to survive on the African savanna, John, where threats and hostile intentions were a daily reality. Conspiracy theories are a result of this evolution. Mm-hmm. Unquote. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theories are the result of evolution. I'm just looking for enemies, and I found one. Well, actually, we haven't found them yet. Who are they? They're the 19 Saudi Arabian guys? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I don't know, but I know that the new scientist is telling me there's complex geopolitical movements happening. My brain can't, my brain can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, maybe. In fact, all of that stuff that I just read to you, those quotes from those really super smart guys, they're all New Worlders. They're all light people. They're all people who are practicing something called psychology, the ology of the psyche, the study of the spirit. And they're telling us and coming up with certain conclusions about my brain but they're using the ology of a very modern, modern method. Should I trust them? Let's keep going. Because to trust them, I think you got to look at a guy named Immanuel Kant, a German, right? Early 19th century guy, late 
18th century. Here's Kant, right? He's a philosopher who does something very interesting, right? He's not going to directly address conspiracy theories. He's not even using those kind of phrases, but he is going to put out a theory of knowledge, epistemology. He's going to put out a way for us to understand the way we think. Yeah. And I think his explanation helps us understand what's going on. So you want to do it? Let's do Immanuel Kant. All you got to know about him is ice trays. Mm -hmm. The thing in your freezer. Ice trays. Andrew's not here with us, but he's going to produce this later. Andrew? Ice tray sounds. Because that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, that's what he says. He says that your mind, my mind, is like an ice tray. And the phenomena that surrounds you, the experience of nature that surrounds you, that your smell and your taste and your touch, those things, that that experience gets liquefied and poured into your ice tray. Right. Into your... He's not saying the brain. It's your faculty for knowing, whatever that is. And all of your experience, it's... All that stuff gets liquefied and poured almost as if into an ice tray. And then all of those experiences harden like ice. And that hardening becomes your beliefs, your principles, the things that are hard. And in some ways, they're not tangible, but as ideas, they become hardened enough that you can, quote, trust them. They're your principles. Hmm. Right? And how does the phenomena, the stuff around you, your experiences get liquefied and poured into your ice tray brain? Well, through the transmission of your senses. Your senses take in the natural world and process those experiences into something you can make sense of. And that making sense of is done in that hardening process that we call understanding. That some people, not the ancients, not the Eastern mystics and not the Eastern Christians, but some people, enlightenment people, the light people call it knowing. The mind hardens the experience into something it trusts. Hmm. This is concepistemology in a nutshell. I'm exaggerating. I'm not, not, that's not true. I'm not exaggerating. I am generalizing. But what's important is this is a slight departure from another philosopher that came before Kant, a guy named John Locke, probably heard of him. His thing was that our ice tray was just one big flat baking pan. Don't even think about the edges. It barely even has edges. It's empty. That's the key. It's a blank slate. It doesn't have contours like the ice tray. This idea, Locke's idea, was a pretty new idea in history because Aristotle and Plato and all the key pre-Christian philosophers, all those cats, who thought about these things, they had started with the notion of the eternal, or at least they all started with the notion of the first principle. There were a few who were, I would call them, postmodern philosophers, Dioscorus and some, uh, Democritus, sorry, Democritus. But you, you generally have the Greeks starting from a first principle, an eternal type of principle, an ultimate idea, the prime mover, 
right? And that idea always had form. It had a way, a quality that human beings could, in some ways, participate in. Humans were connected in the ancient classical Greek to the big thing in the idea sky. At least they were connected enough to make sense of thinking. But John Locke and others, they start to question the connection. They begin to see you, little baby you, as formless, or at least barely formed. You have your skin and stuff, but your mind is a tabula rasa, right? It doesn't really have much on it. It has nothing, in fact. But what you are, for Locke in the modern philosophers, at least these cats who are starting to become deists, what you are is a massive ball of potential. You're like a little massive ball with a name. A massive ball of potential with a name. You're like your little Scotty. What will Scotty become? Notice the language. But the ancients are like, well, he's already something. Yeah, he's Scotty Smith. Uh, he's a blacksmith. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, he's not. He's massive potential. Kant loves this kind of thinking. And his epistemology, though, in many ways derived from Aristotelian thinking, it takes a crazy twist toward the subjective. See, Kant thinks, unlike Aristotle, that the ice tray can be acted upon and changed and altered in your own mind by a special you. So the receptor, your mind, the thing that receives all this sense data, all these experiences, that mind can be acted upon by you. Whoa. By your inner self. The plastic can be changed. You can, you can make it into wood, your little ice tray. It can get acted and changed by you. You can change the size of the little cubits in the ice tray. But he also says it can be acted upon by others. It can be changed by your environment, the actual receptor of the information. It can be changed by politics, by coronavirus. All kinds of things. This is unlike the ancient Greeks, especially Plato. Right? Plato said there are ideal forms that correspond to reality and they're fixed. We just don't see them clearly. Yeah. Kant? No. No. He's teaching epistemological relativism on some level. On some level. He goes slow. Their cats come later, existentialists and stuff, and they're like blowing it all to pieces. He lays the groundwork for all those guys, for all the postmodernists. Well, not really, for the modern philosophers that turn into postmoderns who turn into us who really don't know what to believe or why. Let's just get a Snickers bar. Can we please? Netflix is on. Netflix is always on, by the way. Have you ever thought about that? I'm a sports fan. And I realized something. My whole life has changed because here's what happens. I can watch sports anytime. If I don't watch the news, which is great, then I can actually go watch a game anytime and it feels live, which is really weird because it's not live. The whole world, man, relativism. The sun can be up when you want it to be up over your soccer match when in fact the sun is down. Well, anyway, relativism. How many of you right now would put your hand up to say, relativism pretty much effed up the whole world? Not any hands? 
All right, it's not that bad. But basically, Kant and this concept, it sets in kind of a type of motion. It sets into motion a type of, well, movement called modernity that puts things in place like Freudian psychology, mm-hmm. the self-help industry. <laughs> Think about that. If I can rewire myself by myself, then... I'm going to write a book about that. I'm going to help you rewire yourself. There's a lot of self-help stuff, right? It moves humans from trying to move toward an eternal fixed form to trying to mold and fix themselves into the eternal fixed form. In many ways, Kant's philosophy challenges the idea of obedience. It says something like, you know what? I don't have to get in line. I just need to make my own line and make the destination of my own line worth standing in line for. I like that idea. This is my line. It's going to Doctor Town. I'm going to be a doctor. If you get in my line, it's a great line. Where in the old world, you bowed your head and you stood in the damn line that everyone else was standing in. <laughs> Doesn't sound as fun. I'm simplifying in gigantic proportions. I get it. But I think these <laughs> simplifications, I think they help us to understand conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. See, here's how I'm thinking. In the old world where conspiracies took place, just as they do now, by the way, conspiracies are just two or more people who get together to do something somebody calls evil. Welcome to life, by the way. Like, someone who doesn't believe those are real, uh, are they crazy people? You don't think there's two or more people conspiring in secret right now to do bad? What? I don't really get that. Of course there's conspiracies. The question is, is which theories do you believe in? But anyway, that's a different conversation. So, the old world had conspiracies, and they took place. But people were much more inclined to think of their thinking as in line or out of line with the divine. So their judgments were about which is in and which is out of the divine line. Not according to their own self, but according to that which was given them in revelation, for better or worse. Some of these revelations are nutty. The old world people were, if we can say it, less free to think of their own ice trays as malleable, relevant, or good. Right? As they experienced phenomena, they were not trained to imagine themselves free to analyze their own reasoning. They're not going to get on a couch. There's a reason that they didn't get on a couch. By the way, I want you to know something, um, FYI. People in the old world had couches. They just didn't sit on them with somebody called a psychologist. They sat on him and did other things. Okay, they had seats in which to think about their own thoughts, but they didn't. They were more likely to see their experiences with natural phenomena as coded and known to them beyond some particular interpreta interpretation by them. Their experience had eternal meaning. It had reality coded within it. They had to undo the code, but not by undoing their ice, ice tray. They just had to figure it out according to the reality 
Again, very platonic idea. So, reality was coded with truth. It was a much more singular experience for the individual. It didn't involve all this dynamism between my brain and the experience. Light people, us, me and you, we've been trained to think as individuals, to imagine ourselves as the shapers of reality. Again, as creatures who can fashion our own mind trays, our own epistemological landing pads. We're Kantian. But if there's a reality beyond our own mind, beyond our own ice tray, then our recasting, our remodeling, the remolding of the tray really doesn't help us receive phenomena. If there is something beyond us that's real, it's not like reforming our model helps us understand the truth any bit more. Right? It just makes us more free to interpret. It makes us more free to reject. It makes us more free to imagine ourselves at the center. It makes us free to turn ourselves into whatever we want to turn ourselves into. But it not necessarily makes us closer to reality. In fact, as Dostoevsky would put, well, I'm paraphrasing here, freedom, well, that's a real bitch. Freedom actually, in some ways, whoa, try that on. That's not an easy pair of pants to wear. Freedom's tough. And what happens is, is you're really challenged. Now, we're all free. It doesn't really matter about any of the things I'm saying. We're free. But when you really realize you're free, man, the first thing you do is you look for a somebody to hold on to because it's hell. Pure freedom is almost impossible. Think of being caught in, in, in a forest without anybody's footpath ever. I guess you think you're going to get it done. Maybe. Maybe you're the one that gets out of the freezing forest alive. I don't know. Maybe. So, anyway, so what happens? Well, we moderns, we tend to reason in bunches because of what's going on with our freedom. We tend to shape up our ice trace receptacles in a way that corresponds with those around us. The freedom part, what happens is, is it turns into imitation. It turns into us imbibing our neighbors, which we're meant to relate to anyway. And then suddenly we get this little group think. We get this group way of being whereby we tend to all start to create and reform and remodel our ice trays into a similar form. We cluster together around certain ligs. Ligaments here coming from the word religion, religion, the centerpiece of our world, we tend to form it in groups. And these philosophical principles that our mind takes, they take form, right? And we start to process phenomena similarly, and we start to call ourselves together. We shape our minds in similar ways as a type of participation with reality, with each other. And when we participate this way with reality, right, we do it communally. And so we start to create the same ice cube receptacle for all the natural phenomena that we liquefy into meaning. We tend to look alike. But there's a little 
trick to this. Today, in the modern world, our neighbors aren't actually neighbors. This is so interesting. Or maybe not. They live in another world, our neighbors, most of them. They live online in communities that don't um, commune. In that sense, we can shape our minds quickly and without any fleshly interaction. And in that way, our minds sort of become disembodied, separated. Right? The whole, our body, like my legs, gets separated from my mind as it goes around on the internet. My leg is back in my, at my office, sitting next to the computer. Right? We become unmoored from reality, from true forms. We breathe without the body. Right? Our ideas become like breath, but we're not breathing within our body. We're out there. And that's the word conspiracy. Spirare, to breathe. Conspirare. Con. Spirare, together we breathe. And so what's happening is, is together breathers, people who think alike, they're very normal. It's what happens to all of us in society. It totally fundamentally happens. But the problem is today with the internet, we're doing it without the body. In other words, we're not doing it in a natural way or in a way that is known to us as natural. We're doing it on the interwebs. And on the interwebs, where all the gnosis, the knowledge, is loaded up, all that knowledge is unbodied. It's the Gnostic heresy made into a thing that's not really a thing called the internet. And when you participate in it, not because you're some bad dude, when you participate in it, you are being disintegrated. You're being separated. You're being unbodied, right? Right. You're breathing, but you don't have any lungs. In that sense, what's happening isn't real. It feels real, but it's not whole. That's the better way to say it. It's real, but it's not whole. It's gnosis. It's knowledge unmoored from the incarnate. So I'm not sure if any of this makes sense. But we're going to keep going on this. Yeah, we are. We're going to go on this a lot, actually. Not on the podcast, but we're going to start our pod course, our second one on July 14th. So this is a type of little commercial for you to come join us at First Things. We're going to do a course that aims to look at the history of conspiracy and look at the epistemological foundations behind some of these mysteries some of these mysteries called conspiracies so if you like a good story if you like intriguing plot lines if you like the story behind the story join us wednesday nights at 7 30 p.m online now how do you get there well you get there by being a supporter of first things foundation so if you like what we do and i told you what we do we go out we live hard for two years and there, we simply begin to relate, find amazing people who have great ideas, and then we just become their consultants. And if you come onto our, our donation platform and you become a recurring donor, you get this class that I'm talking of for free, free. It's easy. There'll be a link on how to join the class. But it's not just a class. It's also a Georgian KP. 
or a Georgian Supra. We kind of organize it that way with some toasts and we all get together. And then at the end of the class, the 20, 30, 40, however many people it is, we're all invited to an actual incarnate, to an embodied get together. We are all offline or online, and then we move offline and sit at a table like we did in North Dakota with some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. They threw a big giant party. And we all get together, we toast, and we see each other face to face, and we call ourselves friends. That happens at the end of our course. So come, learn, converse. There's tons of that. It's not just words from on high. And then, right, participate in helping others through your recurring donation. And finally, there's a third class that you'll get for free as well. That class starts in the winter. We're calling that class Intersectionality, Critical Race Theory, and the Dark Ages. Get ready. But first, we're talking conspiracies. That starts July 14th, so hurry up. Join us. Conspiracies. Emmanuel Kant. Whew. There's a lot there. It's too much, actually. So, thanks for joining us. Shenny Skagi Marjos. That's to you, the victory. I hope to hear you back here. Next week, I think we got Paul Kingsnorth coming on. He's an amazing author. He's British. And uh, there's other folks coming on. We're having fun. Little by little, trying to run this KP Summit. Everybody's coming here from First Things to Greenville. We're all going to be together. But most of all, thank you for joining us on Watar. Nakvamdis, hasta luego. Kambufo, that's Bambara. Au revoir, that's French. Peace out to you. Check you later.